Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Royal Academy's Festival of Ideas and to this opportunity to meet our multi-talented children's laureate, Lauren Child. My name is Nicolette Jones. I am, among other things, the children's books reviewer of the Sunday Times, and I am, as always, delighted to have the opportunity to talk to Lauren. She's a modest person, but don't let that allow you to underestimate her true originality as an artist, her exceptional skill as a writer, not least for comedy, and the huge contribution that she's already made in her role as laureate to the way we think not only about illustration and picture books and children's literature, but also about how we go about encouraging creativity in the young and indeed in all of us. So hands up, adults and children, who here likes to write and draw? Keep your hands up if you feel you have enough time in your work or school life to do so. All those of you who put your hands down, Lauren is your champion. She's on a mission to help you and to nurture all the arts that feed into each other, fine art, film, music, television and design. So just to tell you quickly a little bit about Lauren, the daughter of an art teacher, she found her niche after making lampshades out of saris and painting spots in the background of Damien Hirst paintings. Her first groundbreaking picture books, I Want a Pet and Clarice Bean, That's Me, were published in 1999 to instant acclaim. She won the Greenaway Medal for I Will Never Not, oh, sorry, I Will Not Ever Never Eat a Tomato, her first Charlie and Lola book. And in 2002, that pesky rat won a Gold Smarties Award. Her Clarice Bean novels and her spoof thrillers about smart-talking, code-cracking girl spy Ruby Redfoot who, together with her butler sidekick, solves mysteries and helps rid the world of evil villains, proved her gifts as a writer as well as an illustrator. Her latest picture book is A Dog with Nice Ears. She's a trustee of the House of Illustration, the gallery behind King's Cross, set up by former laureate Sir Quentin Blake. She's been awarded an MBE for her work and was appointed as an artist for peace by UNESCO in 2008. She's part of the Durham Commission for Creativity and Education, which is working to promote the best possible government policy. So since this is a festival of ideas, Lauren, tell us a little bit about where your ideas come from. That sure. old question. I will. Can we get rid of this really terrifying slide? I can, I'm, I'm keep... <laughs> no, this is not it. Oh. Here we go. Here we go. No, there. Sorry, I'm having slide trouble. It should go, can it go back one? Can you go up one? No. Thank there you. Sorry, there just looking at my face is. was rather <laughs> unnerving. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, Always I hard. mean, it's <laughs> very, very difficult, yes. Um, so yeah, the question that I get asked um, more than any other is, where do you get your ideas from? which is, of course, probably the question any um, person in any field of the arts will be, will be asked. And, and of course, that's, that is the most interesting question to ask anybody because it's 
It's really how do you tick? And, um, and how do you make the leap from yeah, and, and not creating anything to creating something? Exactly, and, and I, always, I always sort of reel off all these different things because I'm not sure my clicker's working. Thank you. Um, and of course, it, there's, there's no end to ideas. Ideas come from absolutely everywhere. And um, when I was thinking about um, my laureate work and being the laureate, I started to think about the need, the need for us to stare into space and, and sort of look around us and spend time actually not doing things, not, not doing anything um, that's sort of scheduled. I think we schedule too much and and I, I started looking looking at the ground and taking pictures and th this is this is the council's very own code for what they're going to do to our roads which they do regularly and and um, and I saw this as I came out of my publishers and the whole road was covered in all these sort of messages and it was rather beautiful and and it could be it could be in take modern and, and then uh, the very first day that I decided I was going to, to take photographs of the things that I saw dropped or discarded or lost, um, this was the first thing, I, as I was telling my friend Phil about this, this is what I saw. And, um, and it's, it's weirdly life-affirming. And I, I sort of thought... I should... also, it also suggests a story. It does suggest Somebody a story. scattering there. The, uh, the card in a fit of peak. No, I am not, and I'm never speaking to you again. Oh. You know, the, it's, those fragments give rise, don't exactly. they? Exactly, and hearing so. Nicolette say that makes you see inside her mind as well, because that's <laughs> your first thought. My first thought is, really? It's like, it, 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 it's a sort of message I'm obviously from... obviously more doubtful. Yeah, it's a sort of message from beyond, and it's like someone's telling me that. And I thought how much better we would all feel if we found cards like that all over the city and um, would we be different people if we kept seeing all these lovely messages to us um, and then um, I started making notes of overheard conversations you often hear these wonderful snippets of conversation as you walk by and you think what does that mean and this is one that um, my friend David heard and I'm ashamed to say in my own area um, by a child of about nine and you think I didn't even know what an olive was when I was nine but to have football smelling olives is rather lovely and and then I thought there's also that need to be stupid that need to be silly it, it, it's important you know that time being stupid and we were on holiday in Sweden and they seem to have a passion for folding beds and my daughter was lying on on the bed and I decided to fold her into it. And, and, it, and it was just kind of a really lovely moment. It, she didn't suffer at all. But, I, but um, it made her laugh. And I thought about that and this kind of weird technology we have that can actually be potentially disastrous. <laughs> do, you think, do you think children uh, don't get the opportunity to mess about, to notice things on the street in the way that perhaps you did when you were growing up? Oh, I think they do. I, I think they do get the chance to be silly, but I think we should delight in it more. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and doing that um, gave me, a, a, you know, 
a very nice morning. I, I, and I enjoyed myself, she enjoyed herself. And it was just, it, and who knows, it might, I might think of something around that. There might be a folding bed. Yeah, you one never of the new know. Books. Or something. I just like, I just, she's disappeared completely into a bed. Um, <laughs> and, and so this book, this is my first book, um, Clarice Bean, That's Me. Mm-hmm. Um, this all really came about from me living in a shared house. And my room was, it was in Kentish Town, my room was quite high up. And there was this, there was this boy, he was about five years old, six years old or something. Um, and he had a very, very loud, deep voice. And he would um, stand in his garden just shouting over the wall at the little girl of the same age. She was next door. She was called Natalie. And he was always, you know, shouting. He's like, I've got a guinea pig, Natalie. Do you want to stroke it? And, <laughs> and it, it was really like... And we called him Shouting Boy. And he really became the, the sort of... The, the beginnings of this story about this girl. Because she... I could always... Because I had this vantage point, I could see her hiding behind the wall and he couldn't see her and she'd just keep really quiet because she didn't want to play with him. And so he became, his real name is William, but he became Robert Granger in, in my story. And so that's how all these things start to weave in together. Just by noticing just, little things that happen around you. Yeah, and writing them down. And um, this is another thing that happened. This is my friend Verity with her cat. And... Um, Verity, we, we were around there one evening, I guess I was in my 20s, I think, but she, she's a costume designer for film, and she had decided she wanted to make her cat little Victorian bonnets and capes and things, and she said how she was going to dress her up. And her brother and I just had this, had this idea that this cat was going to end up on one of those sort of Jeremy Kyle shows, really kind of telling everyone how dreadful uh, this woman was and, and how... How, how she suffered. Yeah, how she'd suffered. And I, and, I, and, and I kind of thought I could imagine her sort of really angry, this cat. And, and then I started to think about the way that we do to turn pets into these accessories and, and, you know, a little dog. I saw, this isn't the dog, but I did see a dog when I was in L.A. wearing trainers. And I thought, how embarrassing for you. It, it <laughs> must be deeply humiliating to be um, a dog and have to wear shoes. And, and then I started to think about what it was like in childhood as well, when you have to wear something, whether it's a uniform or a Christmas jumper or something that you don't don't like Mm. and you have very little control over what you do and so I wrote this book um, this one called um, Who Wants to Be a Poodle I Don't and and it's all about exactly that you know oh sorry my my it's about it's about um, you hold it thank you it's about a dog who really wants to be a real dog but she, it, it has an owner that um, insists on dressing it up in little ponchos and um, little clothes and taking it to the pet salon and um, it wants to be called something, a real dog's name like Nasha or Gripper or Growler 
but it's called Trixie Twinkletoe, Twinkletoes Trottelop Delight. And it hates that. And, and the whole thing is about trying to tell its owner, um, you know, that, that this is unacceptable. Beneath its dignity. Sorry? Beneath its dignity. Yes, totally yes. beneath its dignity, which these collars that they poor things have to wear um, when they get fleas or, or an injury. And, but they do look funny. So, and I bet there are people here who dress their dogs up. And in a way, who wouldn't? You know, it's, 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 <laughs> it's marvellous to, to see, but, you know, it must be awful. Um, <laughs> from the dog's point of view. From the dog's point of view. And then I started to think, this is from a, a book that hasn't yet come out called Hubert Horatio, and um, it's, a, it's a little novel. I've, I did a picture book of, of that book, but I've now done a, a very illustrated novel. And, and I was thinking about these people who have to do jobs like dress up as a giant hot dog. And that is a job. And, and, um, and, but it's sort of remarkable that, you know, you're walking along it's perhaps a New York street and everyone's going about their business and then there's someone dressed as a giant hot dog. And that's how you earn your living. And, and I think it, all of this, though, is, is sort of fascinating um, to see it. So do you think you have to have a special eye for eccentricities? Do you think you're tuned in to, to watch out for the oddities? Or do you think all of us are aware of these things, we're just not making the most of them all the time? I think you ca all of us can be aware of it. It's just, I mean, it really is the way my brain ticks. And all those things that I will always remember having lunch with someone and noticing that as they sip their cappuccino, they get cappuccino on their nose or, or you know, they've spilt yoghurt down their tie and that will be my memory and it, it's, I can't help that. I never remember the, the facts and, and it's really annoying because, you know, if you're having a, one of those sort of debates with somebody about some important thing that you've heard, I can never remember the details and I just say, well, it was really interesting. But I will be able to tell you you're wearing a yellow cardigan yes. and some buttons were missing or something. I can tell you that. And you had fluff foam on your nose. Yes, yes. I, can, I can remember all of those things. And, um, um, but that's actually turned out to be very useful in the work that I do because I think if you're an illustrator, it is about noticing those particular things and the way someone stands and they lean a bit, or the way somebody, um, when you're writing, the way they put words together. Um, my sister, my younger sister, has a particularly interesting way of using vocabulary, which I always love. And she was talking about my parents' um, kitchen, and one by one, things were dying, you know, the fridge and the oven and the washing machine. She said, all of mum and dad's compliances are breaking. And, and it, was just, it was just such a nice way of, of putting it, you know. Um, but she does, you know, she does that so you a lot, yes. yes it, it, yeah, it, it's funny, isn't it, that what your attention is on in the first place mm. is different for each individual. Mm. And in your case, it's, it's both language mm. and it's the visual details. Mm. that arrest you and can be the trigger for some mm. other idea, can work their way into your books. Yeah. Um, and then this, I put this in because I, I work with a designer called um, David McIntosh. He's also a wonderful illustrator and writer, but he, he does a lot of the design in my books. 
and he's brilliant. Um, but sometimes when we're working on, on a book and we get sort of, I don't know, we just get into this very silly thing where we start sending each other really stupid emails back and forth, which probably take up half our day, you know. And, um, but it's fun and it's a break from the slog of it. And then one day when I was telling him that I was particularly under pressure and really busy, and he sent me this note, like this, through the, through the post in an envelope. And of course, I couldn't resist putting it together, which took 15 minutes and, you know, wasting my time. And, um, <laughs> but it was quite a nice break in my day as well. You know, there was some value to it. But it, and I, he knows I love doing puzzles, so he knew I wouldn't be able to stop myself from doing it. So even when you shouldn't, you should? Yeah, you should. Yeah. Um, so then I started thinking about that thing of, you know, what do you think about when you think about nothing? Because I think it's pretty impossible to think about nothing. So the notion that we have that we're wasting time by staring into space is a fallacy because actually it's, it's never nothing. It's never nothing. There's always something being processed. Yeah, and sometimes we need that nothing time. And I... I spend a long time just staring out of the window and when I'm meant to be working and I used to think, oh, for goodness sake, do something. And actually, I think it's that sort of fallow time that you need. And um, I mean, sometimes it's embarrassing because there's some builders working on the house opposite me and they started waving at me because I was just sort of staring like this. <laughs> um, but but it's, I think it's still good because I, I think it allows you just to sort of see see things and, and let your thoughts collide a bit. Yes. Um, and you do see fascinating things. I mean, the other day I was, I, I was looking out the window and I saw this, this man cycling. He's wearing yellow, very kind of pristine yellow shorts and a white shirt. He was cycling a bright yellow, brand new bicycle. One of those very state-of-the-art bicycles and he was holding in one hand a really brand new bright yellow matching yellow scooter and and he was cycling along and he looked he looked like it was for a magazine shoot and then suddenly something happened and the scooter got stuck in his front wheel the front wheel buckled and he fell over and the whole thing was this dreadful tangle of 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 machinery and and him and I, I felt so sorry for him because he was looking so perfect and so beautiful on his bike with his scooter. But it was also such a sort of marvellous thing to see this sort of tangle of, of yellow and, and this perfection just, you know. And that's my job is to see things like that and write about them. Lovely. But, uh, uh, it's and, horrible. And in for children, him. particularly. Uh, one of the things that you'll be, you've been keen to promote is the idea that not that they should spend all their time in the classroom necessarily staring out of the window instead of listening to the lesson, but that the this pressure that we put on children to be constantly busy and constantly mm. entertained and constantly active uh, denies mm. the fact that they are actually, when they're apparently doing nothing, they are processing something. Yeah, because... Um, I'll come back to that one, but because... I mean, this is a piece I wrote um, in one of my Clarice Bean books, which mm. is all about her problem with concentration and how her mind starts to drift. And the more she starts to think about concentrating, 
the more her mind starts to float off because you start thinking about the word concentrate and then it takes you off in a different direction and I think who on earth could can concentrate for more than a few minutes completely concentrate because as as I'm talking many of you all of you will have probably gone off into a little reverie about something else because that's normal um, because as I say words it's clicking a thought in your head and that is the very um, point of creativity and problem solving that's that's how our minds put ideas together invent things and so you know you you think um, I mean I'll always think about and you can't you, you can't always trigger it when you're at the point when you think you're working yeah I know that feeling that sometimes you can sit at, look at a computer screen think I'm going to write something and nothing and it happens. doesn't happen then and you go and put the laundry in and while you're doing that it all falls into place. I think I agree and I think that happens because you've sort of released your mind you freed your mind you're doing something physical so I often have my best thoughts if I'm driving um, or, or, or exactly walking. or walking because it's that movement and sometimes you could be sitting here and something I say just connects with something you've been thinking about and you put thoughts together um, and I'll just go back to this um, this idea which is uh, Sarah Fanelli who's the writer and illustrator wonderful wonderful artist but she the, the onions great escape yeah it's called the onions great escape and she's she's done a whole book where she sort of discusses these or raises these ideas you know how long is a minute and can minutes last longer than others and of course they can they do you know time is not you know as, as, as sort of a definite thing because because it's how we feel about that minute yes. before something happens and um, and so it's a it's a lovely idea and, and those are sort of ideas that are, are great just to think about and and allow yourself to have time to think about um, and this is uh, this is Clara's been reflecting in that fragmented way a bit of a thought here and a bit of a thought there mm. um, and this is her teacher, Mrs. Wilburton. This is her teacher, Mrs. Wilburton. And again, this idea um, came out of... Um, my mother is, or was a teacher, but, um, but we, we were watching a documentary together, which was all about seven-year-olds, and there was this real old trout of a teacher who, who, who was just on this boy all the time, you know, and he's, he's little, he's seven, and... And it was just her constantly going on at him about, you know, Kevin, if you don't sit down and if you don't do this and you don't be quiet. And, and, and it was, and I just got my revenge on her by, this is what she looked like. This is exactly <laughs> what she looked like. And, um, and so I put her in a book. Um, but I was thinking about that thing of like t telling people what they should be doing all the time. And of course, you know, the best teachers won't do that. They'll bring something out of you. They won't try and squash you. Yes. Um, so and the kind of teacher your mother was, presumably. Yes, and she is here today. But yes, yeah, she's <laughs> a very, very good, very, very good teacher. Um, and, and then this, this is also from this Clarice Bean book. And this is, course, is one of the reasons that this was that Clara Spoon was groundbreaking was precisely what you do with text here that you make text express 
Every, everybody does it now, but they're all copying you. You make text well, express sure. um, uh, the sense of, of what you're writing about. I became interested in that. I mean, obviously, there, there are people who, who did it before me, but I, I was very interesting, interested in the way that you can, you know, you can do something as a scene and you're trying to show the environment, you can then do something as a sort of an idea of how it feels. This is how it feels to be in Clarice Bean's room. It doesn't exactly look like that. And I've done her lots of times. So you get the sense of her moving around. And then this, this one is, is how it feels to have an argument with your brother and how that can escalate and how how if you read this and, and look at the font that each character has, you, you can see what their voices sound like. It's a way of, of showing voice as image. So if you're reading it aloud, you know, you know who's younger because of the way he's got this very thick kind of crayon-like font. And the mother trying to calm them all down. So her voice comes in rather floaty and you see it sort of trying to stop this. Lovely. Um, when you hear people talk, do you visualise the font? Oh, that's a very interesting question. God, no, I guess I don't because I've never thought about that. But if you ask me to then pick a font for them, maybe I would be able to. But that's very interesting. No. You don't see the, see the words no, over No, I don't. Yeah. Well, maybe next time, think yeah. about it. Yeah. And this again, I mean, this comes a little bit back to Mrs. Wilburton in that I kept trying to write children's books, picture books, and, and they all failed for a very good reason that they were all dismal because I was trying to write in the way that you're meant to write to children's books. You write the text and then you think about how your picture's going to go. But that's not how I... That's not how I would naturally do things. And um, because when I was little, I, the thing I used to love doing was drawing. And I would often do these freezes of our family holiday or some trip. And I would do kind of one after another of what happened, which is a bit like a comic strip. And I was really doing the writing, the caption, so I could draw the picture. So then I decided I was going to write a film. And it just sort of started like this. So I started writing and drawing and writing and drawing and then gradually the writing came into shapes. So I'm writing about a farm and this is the very first thing I wrote for Clarice Bean. And I started to write so it looks like a building. And, and then suddenly I'd written, actually written a book without intending to. So it was all an accident. You're very interested, aren't you, in the idea of visual literacy for children? Yeah. Um, and, and the importance of them uh, responding to images in a sophisticated or possibly not sophisticated way, but mm. just being given the opportunity to read pictures. Yeah, because children, children are very, very sophisticated in the way that they, they observe things because they, they don't have any other language but visual language in there when they first emerge. And, and so they're reading, they're reading body language, they're reading facial expressions. Yes, they're and programmed. For the they're visual. programmed to do that because yeah. they need to do that to survive. And, and so they're constantly looking to, to figure out 
what's going on in the world around them. They therefore notice incredible detail. So, you know, everybody always, you know, thinks that their child's got this amazing memory. But actually, I think it's in us to remember things. We have to remember things. Um, and and to spot things in picture books. Yeah, Children are always yeah, faster than adults. Exactly. To find the details. Yeah, and I think it's because they're sort of born visually literate and, and we sort of lose it, unfortunately, because we don't value the visual in the way that we do um, the words. But, I, I mean, I always use this picture of this young romance one where you look into her sunglasses and you know immediately why she's crying. And we just do that naturally. We wouldn't think about it. Um, that we know that this girl must be in love with one or other of these characters, you know, and she's very upset. Um, and I love also in comics how you get words become image, so POW becomes an illustration. Very pop art. Very pop art. Um, this is one of, I think, the best pictures I've ever seen of loss and grief, and it's, it's John Birmingham's uh, grandpa. grandpa. And you know everything from that picture, and anyone can read that picture. And the way that the, the chair is in colour, um, because it was such an important place for this man to sit, and the child has gone into black and white, and the emptiness of the child, the child without colour. And it, it's such a sort of beautiful way of putting it, and with no words. Um, and so I, I always think, you know, we're, we're surrounded by incredibly strong visual references. And the next picture I'm going to show you is, is something that completely changed my life when I saw this picture. Completely changed my life. And I remember where I was. I was in um, Southend in Essex. And I was walking along with my mother and my grandmother and my sisters. And I saw this poster and I never wanted to go in the water again. I had no idea what it was for or anything, but this <laughs> completely changed my world. I find it very, very hard to go in the sea now. And, and, it, and it's, quite, it's quite a thing that this year I went to LA and I actually went swimming. And I haven't done that for a long, long time. In, and in California, yeah. In California, because Impressive. there are sharks in California. <laughs> and, and it doesn't matter how many people tell me, but you know, only, only 12 people a year get attacked by sharks. Well, I could be one of those people, so <laughs> sorry. And, and, but I think what's, what's really interesting is that we can all read this picture. We all know that this, this lady is in trouble, and, and, and it's not going to end well. And, but this is not a photograph. This is a painting. And yet we feel that feeling. It's all made up. Sharks are not that big, but, but still, we, you know, it sort of connects to us. And a lot of people from my generation have the same feeling about Jaws, the movie, that it changed something about their ability to swim in the sea. But also the idea that not only that the picture tells a story, but that the story has impact yes. on you. Yes, yeah. Uh, and that yeah, and it's all in there. That's all you need to know. Um, and but from that um, challenge to me, I I then um, I think it's it's the reason for me writing um, the Ruby Redfoot books really because I became very interested in survival and how you do escape a shark and 
and then all, therefore all the other things that you might do to preserve your own life or somebody else's. And um, I think a lot of children got very interested in those Bear Grylls programmes all about survival, because it is really interesting and what you would do if you were in a particular situation. So you put Ruby in peril? I put her in peril. And you can also see I drew her a bit like a comic strip character, so she also relates back to that world. Um, uh, I was going to say that, that she, she has a, she's indebted to comics and also, of course, to film. Her, her butler sidekick is called Hitch, which mm. is a... Um, a reference to Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, and there's a kind of Hitchcock feel about the dialogue and about the events. So it's both film and comics. But uh, this, Peanuts, had a very profound effect on you when you were young. Yeah, I, I was completely um, crazy about Peanuts. You know, I collected every scrap that you could find, you know, printed in newspapers or whatever. And I, I made a book of all the images and I used to spend hours trying to draw the characters. And actually that was a really, really useful lesson because you begin to understand how sophisticated these drawings are and that if you get the nose just slightly the wrong shape, it is no longer Charlie Brown. And if you put the eyes tilting like this, he looks distressed. Um, and then, you know, if you put the eyebrows up like this, he looks angry. And, and you, you learn a lot from copying things like that. And I think... Um, I also loved the way that the children talked in this really sophisticated way because uh, I think what Schultz, Charles Schultz, who obviously wrote and illustrated these cartoons, understood is that children do have very sophisticated, important thoughts. Um, and it, I'm sure, I didn't realise it, but I'm sure that's where Charlie and Lola come from because I began, I, I suddenly saw... A couple of years ago, I, oh, I didn't put any adults in Charlie and Lola. He doesn't put any adults in Peanuts. It's all about conversations between children. And these characters uh, are very much reduced to a few kind of features. And it's the shape of their eyes that makes them look like Charlie and Lola. And also that the, uh, the conversations have punchlines, they have jokes. It's, it's the comedy of Peanuts as well. Mm. Oh, yeah. As well yeah. as the sort of slight philosophical sophistication where you feel like they're actually thinking about big things, big questions, yeah. um, and yet expressing themselves in a childish way. Yes, and it's sort of noticing that. And I decided that I was going to write every... I mean, I've only written something like seven Charlie and Lola books. So you see a lot of them around, but they're taken from the television series. But I... I decided I was going to write about the tiniest things that might happen in a three-year-old's life, because I think in my story she's probably about three, and how, how you have to um, navigate them. So, you know, when you're that age, you're always coming up against things for the first time, things you've never encountered before. So one of your inspirations is... Uh, small children's early experience and the, and the way things feel problematic. Yeah, like going to someone else's house and being confronted by a pie is, is you, you know, very worrying when you're three because you don't know what's under the crust. I mean... Do you have a thing about pies? Is it the Jaws thing all over again? I'm not sure what's underneath. <laughs> no, I think it was... Um, 
I think it was about fish pie for me. And, <laughs> and I... That would do it for anyone. I know. And I, I had a fear of... You know, it does relate to Jaws, actually. Because uh, <laughs> I, I, had, I had a fear of bones being in the pie, you know, fish bones. And so it made me wary of all pies. And... You know, it's the not knowing what's what's in down down inside that pie, and so I think it's it's not uncommon for children to want all their food spread out in little sections, not mixed together. There's always this not mixed together thing. Mm. Of course, you don't want it mixed together because you want to you want to be able to identify each thing, don't you? Yes. So, Otherwise, it's full of surprises. And it's that's full of scary. surprises. You don't like surprises. So. I think all of these things are perfectly fair enough to be a bit concerned about. Do you have a very vivid memory of this from your childhood, these kinds of feelings? How do you um, summon them up now? Well, I think what's, what's interesting, I mean, so much obviously has gone away. Um, that's why photographs are so useful, because we often remember things that we have in photographs. And I don't have many photographs from my childhood, because it just wasn't something you took loads of photographs is expensive um but i do it's funny how certain memories just stay with you and then i think then that is an important thing even if you've remembered it wrongly because we're always misremembering things but if that's how you feel about it and that's become the memory then that is that is what happened or is your concern? Another big influence, of course, on your childhood is that you looked at a lot of paintings, a lot of fine art, as well as mm. cartoons and movies. Yeah, because uh, my father is an artist and art teacher, and so his passion is to go to galleries. And so we went, we went to an enormous number of galleries and exhibitions. And sometimes you didn't want to go, a bit reluctant. Um, but... A lot of the time it was, it was very interesting or it was interesting maybe for one painting or something, but that's still really good. That's really useful to have that experience and, and become familiar with all these different artists and see the differences between them. Sometimes it's just the click-clacking of your shoes on the marble floor that makes you love going to the gallery. And that's also part of the experience, being in the space. I mean, this... This has all been redone and it's, it's an amazing experience just to walk in here. Um, but I think it, it made me aware of what it was that I connected to in terms of painting. Um, and this I, is a Matisse. This is Matisse. Which does look as though it bears some relation to what you do. Yes, because Matisse had a whole... Um, um, time of drawing interiors and things and, and, and painting interiors. So there's a whole sort of section of his, of, his, of his work which is all about looking through windows or doors or drawing furniture. And I've always been interested in interiors and furniture and I draw furniture all the time. And, and so the way he puts it together is quite illustrative. And, and I've never really understood this, this need to keep defining what is illustration and what is fine art. And it seems a shame to me because we see illustration as a sort of not quite as important as fine art. It's not quite as serious as fine art. Yet illustration is probably the first art that we really become aware of in our lives. And it might be the only piece of art that we actually have with us in our homes, you yes, know, for a lot of children. And of course... 
a lot of the artists who are producing the illustrations are themselves trained fine artists who've spent mm. a lifetime looking at fine art. Mm. So it's a slightly strange idea that just because it's for children, it's not, after all, made by children. No, I know there is this odd, there is this odd problem we have with that, where yes. we confuse working with children in any, any, any sort of part of working with children, not just art, but it, it, as if it isn't as important, yet we're always talking about our children as very important. But I, uh, I understand that in the medical profession, paediatrics is not the root to the, to the top. If you want to achieve distinctions in medicine, you don't work with children, mm. which is bizarre, because mm. you'd expect that that was actually the most important and possibly the most difficult mm. branch of medicine. But the mere association mm. with children somehow diminishes it. I know, and it, and, and it, and it is a shame, because it's, it's, it, and I think we do it again when I was working on the, the Charlie and Lola show, one of the things I said is I don't want plinky-plonky music for, for the, the theme, because children, they respond to all kinds of different music, and it can be anything. And they're not born with this desire to hear some sort of the wheels on the bus. It, that's a perfectly good song when you're, when you're singing along in the car, but it, it, it doesn't mean they want to hear that all the time. They might very much want to hear bark or something. You know, it's, it, we, we sort of set all these sort of rules. And for me, going to galleries and looking at these pictures has been incredibly informative to my illustration work and 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 I think it's made this this is from my new book that's coming out Mary Poppins and I think that sort of early understanding of painters and um, people who draw beautifully has has really helped me with composition and color and texture um, you can definitely see a connection there but also um this is characteristic because of your use of collage. You're, you love patterns and yeah. you collect them. How, what do you do? Do you keep strap, scraps of interesting... I, I do. This is all envelopes. I started to notice that the insides of envelopes are all different. And so I keep a big drawer of envelopes and I've been wanting to do something with them for many years. And then I decided to use mainly the envelope insides as this i mean obviously the background there the wallpaper is is blown up so it's it's big um but some of them aren't and then i've just colored them but it's it's a nice way to sort of challenge yourself to work with the things that you have you you don't have to have special things in order to work as an illustrator i mean you can do it on with, with hardly anything lovely um and so that that's another one of them in the park and again, uh, just, uh, can I just ask you a little bit about colour? Um, pattern and collage is something you use a lot. We've talked a bit about composition and the uh, influences of, say, fine art mm. that you looked at when you were young. Um, uh, there are also Scandinavian influences. You've, you, you lived for a while in Scandinavia? No. No? Um, travelled there. I, I've travelled there, but also, I, I mean, it's, it, I know it sounds really... Um, ridiculous but I when I was quite young I can't remember how old I was whether I was eight or whatever but we went to the first habitat shop in in which was in Oxfordshire I think and I just thought it was like a dream you know you're walking in there's all this pine everywhere and all these 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 lamps that hung over tables and it was so modern because we weren't used to that and it was like walking into another world 
And, and I think I, it's just that weird thing that we all have where you, you have a natural connection to something, but you don't necessarily know why. And it makes you feel, you know, there's something spooky going on where I used to be a Viking or something. But there's something, there's something that just connected with me about Scandinavia. And I, I loved all that sort of blonde wood. And, and then Lola was based on a little girl I saw when I was travelling through Denmark. And there was something about the look of her, the, the sort of these amazing sort of pointy eyes and, and just the way that she was. She was like a little bird. So I set it in Copenhagen. Not that anyone needs to know that, but to me, they are Danish children. I just have to tell you my habitat story. My mother, who qualified in interior design, worked with Terence Conran. Oh, right. And he said, I'm thinking of setting up a shop. Would you like to come in on it with me? My mother said, no, a shop, <laughs> shop, and that was the end of that. So, um, and that's why you're sitting here today. I'm not, not a billionaire. <laughs> um, I'm going to give the audience a chance to ask, ask some questions. Before mm. they do, I, just, I, just, I mentioned colour. I just mm. wanted to tell us a little bit about um, colour influences. David okay. I'm only showing it because for a, for, a, for, a, for a few years I worked as an artist assistant. Uh, to Damien Hurst, which just meant mixing up a thousand pots of gloss paint and drawing up these enormous canvases, sometimes as big as the entire screen, and drawing them up with these perfect circles and then painting them. And people often say to me that must have been boring, but I didn't find it at all boring because something about mixing colour is so fascinating because they had to mix them all at once and they all had to be different. And then his only sort of request was that they all be different colours on the canvas, never repeat a colour, and they must be random. Don't think about where you're going to put the colours. I found I couldn't not think about where I put the colours because I that really... I mind if, if, if turquoise is next to purple and brown because I think it looks absolutely disgusting and I, can, I couldn't <laughs> do that. And, and it is that thing of, you know what is your favourite colour? And children, that's one of their favourite questions. And I said, well, I like pink when it's next to brown, and I like pink when it's next to yellow, but I really don't like pink when it's next to purple. So, you know, this is, this is how they change. You know, you see how colour changes. These are all the same colour. They all look different. This looks really nice to me. Um, this looks really not so nice to me. And, and it's just how you sort of feel about it. But... You know, pink next to purple, I just find it too much. And in fact, purple, full stop, I find too much. I don't really like purple. And I think the reason I don't like purple is because when I was a child, I was asked, what colour would you like to, to paint your bedroom? And I was a big fan of Queen Victoria at the time. I was doing, I was doing a project on her. I can't remember how old I was, whether I was eight or something. And... I loved the Victorians. I thought they were very, very exciting. And I liked drawing their clothes. And so I looked at the colour chart that my mother gave me. And there was one called Victoria. And I thought, oh, I'm going to choose Victoria because I like the name Victoria. And so I painted my, all the cupboards in my room after the word Victoria. And of course, it was a very, very deep 
purple. Victoria Plum. Because it was Victoria Plum. And, and, and so I spent quite a few years sort of living in a plum. And I think it's <laughs> made me really, really not like that colour. So that's... So I, colour you know, is all about context. It's all about context. And it's interesting that a word meant something. The actual colour, no. I'm very sad to say that we have run out of time. Uh, fantastic thank you to Lauren for being so entertaining and insightful about what she does. Uh, thanks to, to both her parents who are here for not thinking it was a waste of time what she did. We agree with you, it certainly wasn't. And also thanks to our signer who has done the most terrific job. And thank you to you. And to the audience for yeah. listening and asking splendid questions. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.